Welcome to the Jeff Knows Inc. Entrepreneurial Podcast with your host, Jeff Lopes. Jeff has over two decades experience as a serial entrepreneur, building brands like KimuraWare from his home basement to a multi-million dollar global brand that has sold over a quarter million pairs of boxing gloves. Jeff's here to educate, guide, and drive you on the process of bringing your ideas and dreams to reality with the inspiring stories from some of the top business minds. Welcome to episode 131 of the Jeff Nozine Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Lopes. Super excited to have on today former WWE and WCW champ and the founder of Champion of Choices, Wildman, Mark Merrill. Great conversation, you guys. Sit back and enjoy. We are live. We are live on the Jeff Nozine Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Lopes. Super excited to have on today, Mark Merrill. What is up, brother? Hey, Jeff. Good to see you, man. <laughs> This is going to be a, a crazy conversation today because there's so many layers of this conversation where, I mean, we got a former wrestler, we got champions of choices, like incredible organization Mark is running to help bullying, help schools. He's traveling the world. There's so many layers. So I want to start off with Mark growing up. What got you into the boxing? Let's get a little history here. You started off as amateur boxing, you got into wrestling. Let's talk about you, where you grew up, how many siblings you had, and let's start that little journey. Well, it uh, my journey starts in Buffalo, New York. And, Buffalo, uh, right across the border from us. Yes, yes. So we, we I, you know, I was an avid hockey player. I played up all the way up to juniors oh. and uh, loved hockey, man. That was my number one sport. But uh, go, going back a little further, uh, my parents divorced when I was eight years old. So it was kind of your, your first setback, you know, when you're a little kid and, and your parents divorced. And we moved to one of the worst drug and gang infested neighborhoods on the west side of Buffalo, New York, right? Right. Uh, like over near the Peace Bridge, if you know where that is. Yeah, you know? of course. Yeah. And um, uh, it, it was a real tough neighborhood. We were kind of the minority in the school system over there and uh, got got beat up a lot as a kid and teased and bullied and so on. We were very poor. So my mother bought most of our clothes like at garage sales and kids would mock us and so on. And um, so I got into hockey and my first um, experience with hockey is kind of a funny story because I loved hockey, you know, but here's the problem. I didn't know how to skate. Okay. So they had tryouts for the hockey team. And uh, when I went there, obviously I had all borrowed equipment, borrowed skates, everything. And I didn't know how to skate. So obviously when you don't know how to skate, your ankles really can't support you very well. And you kind of almost walk on your skates. So as I'm kind of walking around the ring, while well, kids are whizzing by me skating they would hit the back of my skates where I would fall down and they would laugh. And, and anyways, the, make a long story short, the only position I could play, even if I could even make the team was goalie. So they stuck me in goalie, but they realized I had really good reflexes. Like I could make some saves, man. And even though I didn't know how to skate, I could make some saves, you know? So all the kids that mocked me and stuff and picked on me. Um, so anyways, we had 20, 20 games that season. I had 13 shutouts and at the end of the year, they had a banquet for the whole, for the whole league. And they had all the trophies for first place and second and, and different scoring titles and different trophies. And the last trophy was an MVP for the entire league. And I'm sitting in the back of this, this uh, banquet hall. And they said, this year's most valuable player is Mark Merrill. 
I, I just about fell out of my chair. I couldn't believe they said my name. I kept thinking, did they say Mero? They say Mark? And anyways, I got up and I had to walk by all the kids that laughed at me, that bullied me, that mocked me, that that thought I would never make anything myself. Now, I've won a lot of um, accolades over the years, trophies and things. And do you realize the only trophy I have ever kept? Now, remember, I won hundreds of trophies in boxing and and, and football in hockey, and the only trophy I have ever kept, actually, it's, it's, let me get it, it's, uh, it's right here, I still have it to this day, 1972-73 season, most valuable player, and the little goalie stick is broken off, but this is, this is my trophy right here, and so I tell that story because I want to inspire other kids, you know, if you have dreams and goals, and, you know, what I did, Jeff, is I started writing down my dreams and goals as a 10-year-old boy, you know, things like, um, oh, my gosh, of course, most of them were just materialistic because you're a kid, you're poor, you don't have no yeah. money. So I want to I be a millionaire. I want a fancy black Cadillac. I want a speedboat. You know, I'm going to, and, and I said, I'm going to be a professional athlete. I wrote it down. I still got it in my little journal that I have for when I was 10 years old. Still, have, I bring it to my presentations to show people to this day. And uh, one thing I wrote that was really amazing was I was going to win Rookie of the Year because back in 1972-73 season, Gilbert Perot won Rookie of the Year for the Buffalo Sabres. Sabres, That was a huge The French French Connection line. Yes, and and, uh, I was a huge French Connection, uh, you know, line uh, fan and uh, loved those guys, you know. But Gilbert Perot was my favorite. So he won Rookie of the Year that year. And so I wrote down, I'm going to win Rookie of the Year, you know. So anyways – Fast forward now, you know, I become an all-star in football, you know, all first team, all county. Uh, I played junior hockey for the uh, uh, Syracuse Stars. We had a great team and um, we played in the, um, we played, you know, Niagara Falls Sharks. And so we played a lot of top teams and I was a standout in hockey. I really thought hockey would be the, the, the sport I would go professional. Um, I was also end up in the penalty box quite a bit. I was a, I was a fighter on the ice. Okay. <laughs> I was not afraid of anybody. And so in the off season, I would go to the boxing gym to work on my punches and hit the heavy bag and stay in shape, you know? And uh, long story short was one of the trainers saw me and he said, you ever think about getting a match or, you know, boxing match? And I said, I'll fight, man. Why not? You know? So he enters me. How how old were you at this time? I was, um, uh, let's see, at that time I was, it was right after my, my last season. So I was 19. Okay. And I, he enters me in the New York State Golden Gloves, you know. Yeah. And yeah. the first match I win, knock the guy out. Next, next match, knock the guy. Out. Anyways, I go on to win the whole New York State Golden Gloves, and I'm like, damn, I'm a really good fighter. Then uh, I win more and more matches, more tournaments. I won the 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 state AAU. I won the remember the Empire State Games. Yeah, yeah. I won the gold medal in the Empire State Games. And then I was a member of the USA boxing team. I moved to Colorado Springs, Colorado at the U.S. Olympic Training Center. So I was there. And this was 1981 now. Now, the Olympics were boycotted in 1980. So yeah. if I was going to stay with the Olympic team, I would have to wait or you know, the U.S. team, I'd have to wait three more years. But I decided to turn professional. And so I decided I, I, I had a five fight contract with ESPN. I had everything going for me, man. You know, and I, all the dreams and goals I wrote down as a little kid are about to come true. I'm going to get, become a millionaire. I'm going to get that fancy black Cadillac. I'm going to get that speedboat. All yeah. these dreams are coming true. And two weeks before my first professional boxing match, I had my nose shattered in an accident. So I needed reconstructive surgery 
And the doctor said, you know, it'd be almost a year before I can really go back and start having full contact. And it was in that time off. Now, my whole life was dedicated to sports, always training, whether because I was in, I was always in three sports and there was never an off season for me. And even when there was time off, I'd be working out, getting ready for the season. So I never got to experience normal things that kids got to experience, you know, going out with their friends and having fun. And I always thought that was good. I was missing out on something. So I started hanging out with the wrong crowd and this wrong crowd. And, you know, it's my choices though. You know, I'm I'm not pointing my finger at anybody. I don't even say anybody's name because it was my, you know, I decided to do that, but I would go to these bars and next thing I know, I'm going to these parties and drinking, getting high, doing drugs. And I kept thinking I'm coming back in one year and I'm going to be champ of the world. And week after week, month after month, one year became two years, two years became four years and Four years become 10 years of my life of drug addiction. And it this was is going in, on to almost your 30s now, late 20s. Yes, yes. And now, wow. now yeah, exactly. So now I'm, I'm 30 years old and I have a bunch of friends over my apartment. And one of my buddies is like flipping through the TV channels and he landed on professional wrestling. I go, whoa, whoa, whoa stop it there. Let me see this. And as I'm looking at that television, I get this overwhelming feeling. You know, some people call it the aha moment, you know, where I go, guys, I could do that. My buddies bust out laughing. Now, I knew I was always a good athlete, but I mean, it's to stay out. Now, I'm 30 years old, and my buddies are laughing. They're looking at the TV. I think the Road Warriors were on then, if you remember <laughs> them. They got, like, traps coming from their ears, you know? And they said they were laughing. They go, those guys will pick you up and throw you right out of that ring. I said, no, man, I'm telling you, I can do that. My other buddy goes, Mark, what do you do? Start a pro career at 30? And I just said those two words, and I use those two words all the time in my presentations. Those two words are... I believe you have to believe you have no idea the power you give yourself when you believe in you. So I, I, so now the next thing I do is got to take action towards a goal or dream. The action I took was I had to find out where there was a wrestling school. I didn't know how to wrestle. So um, I found out there was a wrestling school. I was living in Venice, Florida. There was a wrestling school in Tampa, Florida, run by the Malinkos. Boris Malinko was a father. The sons that were very famous wrestlers also. So I went to the wrestling school and learned how to fall and do all of the, you know, the moves as much as I could. And um, I had some buddies that I met at the gym, at the workout gym I worked out at. They were driving nine hours to Atlanta and hope to get picked on TV to be one of the guys that get beat up by the superstars, you know. And I said, hey, can I go with you guys, you know. And, of course, when I went there, they, they chose me to wrestle on national television. Now, I didn't even know how to wrestle, really, you know. But they put me against Doom, you know, Butch Reed and Ron Simmons. They were the world tag team champions, and me and another guy had to wrestle, and they just beat the crap out of us, man. I mean, it's like I thought wrestling was fake. You know what I mean? This was real. And uh, anyways, after my match, I'll never forget Dusty Rhodes asked me to cut. Dusty Rhodes was the booker back then and in charge of WCW Wrestling. And uh, he asked me to come into his office and he had to talk to me. I thought I did something wrong, you know? So I got in there. I was apologizing right away. He goes, what are you talking about? He goes, no, no, I got a question for you. He goes, anybody ever tell you, you look like little Richard. Now I thought he was talking about a wrestler named little Richard. So I said, <laughs> I never heard of him. Little Richard. He goes, you don't know the singer, little Richard. I go, Oh, the singer. I go, no, no one ever told me that. He goes, I think I got a gimmick for you. And I was like, oh, my gosh. And that's how I got my foot in the door of WCW. And, and Dusty Rhodes had this character in mind, this Johnny B. Bad character, which I 
was so blessed to be able to do for six years at WCW before going on to the WWE as, as wild man, Mark Merrill. And then of course, marvelous Mark Merrill, but that's how I got my start in professional wrestling. And it's all about man dreaming big in life. You know um, there's just such an opportunity when you believe in you. And I, I, you know, even if I didn't make it at that, I knew I was going to make it at something, you know, I knew I was going to do something in this world. I, my, 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 my life was not going to end at 30 after realizing all the mistakes I made and the stupid things I've done in my life and even continue to do. And then all of a sudden you have all this money. And sometimes when you get a lot of money very quickly, I mean, um, you know, here I am making six figures my first year and it doubles the next year and you're making more money and there's merchandising and all kinds of, and, and you just, and, and, and you just start making mistakes like you, no one teaches you how to handle money or how to invest properly, you know, and that's what was so important for young people when they, we do, talk, I uh, talk about that all the yeah, time, all the time. I squandered and, and lost so much. I went from being a multimillionaire to losing it all and starting all over again. But because I had that blueprint of how to be successful in life, you know, I, I tell you, Jeff, I, I'm never, you know, people say now, like, like, um, this is my 15th year of speaking at schools. And for 14 years, I averaged 230 events a year. I mean, it's my average. I was going nonstop. You know, we even yeah. spoke in Toronto in your hometown many times, you know. And so I, I think about, you know, and then all of a sudden this pandemic comes in. Obviously, schools are closed. We can't go anywhere. We're, you know, social distancing, masks. We can't do our presentation. So we start doing some virtual things. But it's not the same as being no, a live no. audience, you know. And, you know, and, and, and now here I am at 60 years old. And I remember, remember people would say to me, they go, Mark, you know, you ever think of maybe it's time to retire? I said, retire? I'm not going to retire. I'm going to refire. And it's about reinventing yourself, bouncing back, rebounding. You know, what can I do differently? You know, so that's when we started doing virtual events, set up a studio and, 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 and start really inspiring people through that. But it was always about, you know, I can't wait to get back to the live events again. Now, in my life now, I don't see myself doing 230, not, not because I don't want to. It's because I really missed out on a lot on the quality of my life. People don't realize, like, every presentation we do at a school or a community event or something or a church, we receive about 100 messages from students or parents, and, and, and most of the messages we get Many will say how great the presentation is and how it changed your life, but but we get so many there are people that are suffering from depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, divorce, broken hearts, whatever it is, and you take out a lot of pain, and it, it affected my own life. Could I stop you just just for the audience to know? It's it, talk about champions of choice. Like what is the what is the whole idea of what you do in your company and all that stuff? Because you're you're talking a lot about how it's affecting me. I want the audience to know of how impactful and how many people you're helping. So talk about the, the actual starting of uh, champion of choices. Where, where did that all come from? Where was your mindset when you started that? Cause I think, and then we'll get back to these stories. Cause I think that's so powerful. Well, I started champion choices in, in 2007 and it started as, you know, well, first of all, I got, I got a phone call from Melbourne high school. Uh, the football coach wanted to come and speak to the, 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 the football players, you know, before the season starts, kind of inspire them and stuff, you know, and talked about not doing drugs and steroids and things. So yeah. I went in there and 
I was really surprised that after the presentation, uh, how I got some emails from the football players saying, man, that was inspiring. You really changed my life. We're going to go out there and win the championship. You know, <laughs> they're all fired up, you know? So I thought, well, that's just, I realized, Jeff, there, there's no greater feeling than helping another person. Like that's, yeah. that's the greatest feeling in the world to know you can make a difference in someone's life. Yeah. And so unbeknownst to me, they, they called another school and said, hey, we had the speaker at our school. It was really good. He used to wrestle with WWE, blah, blah, blah. And the school said, hey, can you come and speak to all our students in the auditorium? And I said, sure. And that's how championship started. Now, we talk about, you know, obviously um, the bullying aspect of what kids go through, the abuse, um, depression, anxiety, um, you know, loneliness, uh, suicidal thoughts, uh, drug abuse, all the things that uh, encompass my life at one time or another that I'm able to speak openly about. And, you know, I share where my good choices took me. And I'm very blatantly honest where those bad choices took me. So the students always felt like they could relate to me in a, in a way. And that's why they opened up to me. And then we start getting letters on how you saved my life or you changed my life or whatever it is. But we were able to get kids into uh, counseling. We were able to get kids into the help they needed. Parents wrote to me and said how their kid opened up to them and said, um, how sorry they were for the way they treated their parents or or that they're going through depression or even suicidal thoughts. And they were able to get into counseling. So I know we really were making a difference and it just snowballed. And then we started doing more and more presentations. Like I said, it started to get to the point where, you know, we were when one year we did a, a, like around 300, you know, which was just incredible. It seems like I was living out every, of a hotel every, every day. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. And sometimes five in a day, you know, like we do, uh, we do two schools where they wanted two presentations each. Then when the night we'd come back at it for a community night. So it was like my fifth presentation in one day. And it was like running a marathon, man. It was really hard. But again, people don't understand that when you take on a lot of other people's pain and misfortune, it can affect your life too. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes as a speaker, we don't always have someone else to talk to about what we're going through, you know? But it led to my uh, my divorce of my 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 wonderful wife Darlene. Uh, we were married ten years, but we became strangers because I was basically living in a hotel, you know, while she was home, you know, doing her thing, and and it was very very difficult. And um, you know, if I could ever, you know, and I, I don't have any regrets in life, but you know, when you look back and you say, if I could have done something different, I wouldn't have done as many events as I did. So even when I come back from this pandemic, I don't. I don't want to do as many. I certainly want to go out there and help, but I don't want to just encompass my life with, you know, not having other things or else building relationships with family, friends, and eventually, uh, you know, having someone in my life to share my life with. Yeah, it's so crazy. As we get older, I'm 44, and uh, we're going to talk about your your losses in your life, um, but I just, nine, 10 weeks ago now, I lost my dad, which was my best friend. Mm. And um, I, I was the 44 year old Mark that would call my dad three times a day. <laughs> yeah. I call my dad to say goodnight every night. That's how our, that's how our relationship was. Yes. And um, and it was a sudden. Um, never drank, never smoked. Power walked every day. Had a. Uh, I talked to him on a Thursday night, May 6th. Said goodnight to him. How was your day? He said he felt really tired that day. I didn't think much of it because you know what? He's 76. He's out all day doing stuff. I'm like, ah, he's getting old. He's tired. Um, the next morning, um, got up, went to the, got his morning routine, gets up at 6am, got up, went to the bathroom, walked back to his bedroom and had a massive heart attack and passed away. And, and it's been 10 weeks of me struggling to justify that and understand that. So I understand that loss, but I understand too, the last four to five years of, 
Um, I always had that mindset of living with no regrets. When you have something to do, you do. You spend time with family, friends. I've, I've, I've actually implied that into my life about four or five years ago, and I'm very proud of that. But we realize how time is a currency as we get older. Yes. And, and it's like Oprah says, you've got to fill your glass up. You have to take care of yourself. And sometimes you're so much, especially something like you, where it's you're built to serve. But at the same time, too, you're serve, serve, serve. Just like you said, if you don't fill your glass up, there, there, if time passes, you need time to fill your own glass and take care of yourself and fulfill yourself and fulfill what you need to do for yourself. And like you said, a partner, having relationships, having having people around you to love and enjoying life because before you know it, it's gone or the loved ones are gone. And then you just have, wow, I could have done this ABC. So I love that you're realizing that and, 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 and obviously take care of yourself. You're in great health, but yeah, man, just fill your glass up, man, fill your glass and take care of yourself. Jeff, you said something that's so important, you know, time is our greatest commodity. You know, you, you can make more money, but you can't make more time. And, you know, I even wrote on my, uh, on Twitter today, I said, you know, about uh, investing, who's going to cry at your funeral, you know, spend more time with family and, and tell them those, give them those three words they, they don't often hear because sometimes we just assume they know, but say, I love you, man. So important. And I would never, and you know, it's so funny. I, I have uh, my brother, Joel, my sister, Jody, are the, are the two siblings I have left now. And we never end a phone conversation. We talk 10 times a day, every phone conversation. I love you. Love you too. You know? It's just, that's how we've become because we realize how important, how precious this life is. And um, it's, it's just a, a blessing. But hearing your, your story about your dad, I had the same relationship with my father. My dad worked my corner in boxing. And uh, I don't know if you get a chance, but if you go to my YouTube page, you see the story about my dad and, and uh, uh, one of our boxing matches I share and about him. He passed away holding him. I was holding him in my arms when, he, when my dad passed away, but we had the same relationship and you know, how how sure. how how old were you when your father passed away um let's see i was uh 39 when my dad my dad oh, passed yeah. on but you know what's really helped me is um and i share this with people that are grieving or going through a hard time getting over a death or constantly mourning or or, or find themselves always depressed you know what has really helped me is losing my my mother died at 58 my little brother and sister both passed down at 21 uh, my dad died while I was holding my arms. My dad was 70. And um, I think about, you know, if, if they were, if I was constantly mourning or constantly depressed, I think about if they were alive or if they could see me now, how hurt they would be seeing a person they love so much. They'd be like, Mark, get over it. Live your life. Live a victorious life, Mark. You're breaking our heart seeing you like this. And it really helped me thinking, my mom would be, Mark, get up and get out there. You know, my dad would kick me in the butt. Come on, Mark. You know, I could just hear their voices, you know. So it really helped me. Of course, I we all have our time of mourning. You know, it's natural. And, yeah. and some people, it takes longer than others. But, man, I, I meet some people that are, are talking about, you know, years or even decades of not being able to move on with their own life because they constantly mourn for the person that's gone. But if that person could, if they could hear that person's voice, they'd say, come on, man, live the life. You have the opportunity to live this precious life. Don't miss the opportunity. And that has really helped me. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to briefly just bring on to one topic that I read and, and, and about you and, and it'll just be brief. And you had come up with a list of uh, 25 athletes that, um, that drugs had taken a part of their careers and stuff like that. Do you have any regrets coming out with that list or is something that when you did that list, was that something where 
Um, because you always have those mindsets. Yeah. Do you, did you ever go back and think in your head, like, should I have done that? Should I have not have done that? Well, I, the, the, the list was, a, was really to inform people of how tragic this was. I mean, these were not just, these are many of them died under 40 years old. Oh, it's just crazy. It's crazy because I, I, I haven't watched wrestling in years, but I mean, I grew up watching the whole WWF and I was a kid Saturday night and uh, stuff. And, and it's, and, and you look at the list of those athletes that are, there were stars on TV that are no longer with us. It's, it's insane. Now, many of you know, I want to just share this though. So, you know, not yeah. all died from drug overdose. You know, yeah. many were listed as heart attacks or, or or even suicide, some of them, you know. Yeah. So when I look back on that list, it, it's really a list to um just to show how much of a need we had in 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 uh industry change. And you know, do I look back with regrets? Absolutely not. I look at what's happened since. I amazing, out. amazing stuff. So first of all, WWE, we very seldom see a wrestler dying of a drug overdose now because they have some of the strictest Olympic drug testing. Yeah. Um, and, and here's another thing that happened because of, of, of me and some other people that spoke out was anybody that's ever been in a WWE ring gets free alcohol and drug rehab. I mean, if I, let's say I fell down tomorrow and, and became a drug addict, I can go to any rehab and the WWE would pay for it for how long it took. So many guys have taken advantage of this program and some over and over again, you know, and the WWE has stood up and, and taken care of it. So I look at those changes that are just instrumental in helping that. And, and so many things that I was blessed to start or, or have been a part of that have been, you know, instrumental now to help and save lives. I mean, who knows how many lives could have been or maybe were saved because of people like myself and others that have spoke out and many people have I'm, I'm blackballed from the industry i'll never be invited to a wrestlemania or or never be able to get into a, anything like a hall of fame or anything like that but i will never regret the things that i stood for in my life you know you, you know it's you got to be proud of who's looking back at you in the mirror every day yeah, i love that i love that i love that talk about wrestling give me a couple name a couple individuals that were a huge part of your career and and give me a little one or two little stories of something that happened either a wrestling match or something behind the scenes that it just really just puts a smile on your face. Well, I mean, some of my favorite guys to work with are some of the guys I work with over and over again, like maybe well over a hundred matches, you know, like Stone Cold, Steve Austin, yeah. uh, Triple H, uh, DDP, uh, Flying Ryan, um, Steve Regal, you know, some guys that, and then there's the, the, I, I'll give you one thing that was really, uh, I'll give you a couple that are, are yeah. really uh, fun stories was when I was younger, I would watch Ric Flair on television, you know, and he'd always put his hands out when he went to grab his hands, he'd go, woo, and he'd do something like that, he would strut, you know. So now fast forward to, um, I'm wrestling Ric Flair in the European Cup in Germany, okay? And all of a sudden, you know, Rick, and first of all, Rick, barely talks about his matches like you don't go with a nick just and go okay what are we gonna do like us you know he's just that good you know yeah. but i'm so nervous wrestling rick flair i'm kind of new in the, the business you know and i'm just learning how to wrestle myself and so he puts his hands out to me like this and i'm thinking okay he wants to like kind of lock up and grab hands i go to grab him and he pulls away and he goes Whoa! <laughs> it was like the flashback of me sitting in my living room watching rick flair it was like deja vu, man. Like I've been here before, man. It was so cool. Um, you know, so anyways, uh, here's another funny story was uh one of my favorite guys to wrestle, which was almost like being in a real fight, was Diamond Dale's page. <laughs> he was he was just 
physical. And I kind of like that, you know, and because it made you really feel like you're in a match, man, you know, and things looked real because they were real. <laughs> um, but me and him really would go at it pretty hard, you know, but uh, Diamond Dale's Page and I, we were both very new in the industry. So we would go down to the power plant at WCW and work on our matches and try to get better, you know, try to improve ourselves. Um, you know, I was, I was rookie of the year. He was rookie of the year. I won most improved. He won most improved. We were kind of follow. He was following in my footsteps in a sense, you know? And so DDP and I would work on our matches. We always want to have good matches. They always put us like on first on the pay-per-view, you know, and we wrestled each other so many times, not just the pay-per-views, but I wrestled probably him more than anyone on pay-per-view, but in house shows and traveling and stuff. So we would really be able to work on our matches and we'd always want to have the best match on the card, even though it was first, you know? And uh, so one day Dale Sauer down at the power plant working on different spots that we want to do in the matches. And um, so, you know, that evening I go home and go to bed and all of a sudden the phone's ringing like at two thirty three in the morning. I'm thinking who, who, who would call me at this hour? It must be an emergency. You no, know, I don't give out my number to just anybody, you know? And I go over and get on the phone. I go, hello. He goes, Hey, Batman, listen, I got, I got a spot. I want to run by you. I go, Dallas. And he goes, yeah, yeah. Listen, I want to, I go, Dallas, it's three o'clock in the morning. He goes, I couldn't sleep, man. I got to run this by you. Tackle, drop down, reverse the hip toss. I'm like, are you kidding me? This guy is so passionate. Like I, I tell you the one thing I always tell people don't bet against DDP. I mean, think about where he's came from, become a world champion. Now he started the DDPY, the yoga, and doing just incredible things, saving and changing lives, you know. He, um, he, he would come to, when I was living in Florida, he would come and stay with me and go to my presentations because he also wanted to do speaking, you know. So he would start doing that also. And he has just been so, not only in, in, instrumental in, in me becoming a great speaker, uh, because I've learned so much we learn from each other you know but a lot of people don't know this that the famous video that went viral is about my mother's my mother passing on in when i was wrestling in japan and it's been seen by millions and millions of people a lot of people don't realize that i was staying i was it was a it was a, a school i did here in atlanta before i moved here and i would stay with ddp and so you know he's got the whole ddp yoga performance center and he's got people filming and stuff so he goes Hey, bro, you mind if the guys go down and film your presentation? I said, sure, why not? We got a release from the school. You can come and film and take pictures. And uh, so he goes down and he, film, he has his crew film it. And then a day or so later, he goes, hey, bro, the guys put together this five-minute video. Do you mind if we put it up on YouTube? I go, sure, go ahead. <laughs> and next thing he calls me, he goes, bro, that thing just hit 100,000 views. I go, really? And then it was a million and 5 million and 10 million. It just kept going and going and going. And at this point, there's people that have shared it that have over 100 million views. So we added up one day. There was like a half a billion people have seen this video now that right. Dallas filmed for me. And not only that, it opened up doors all over the world. I even went to Russia and spoke at schools in Russia and Guatemala and uh, I owe so much to my friendship with him. And we have inspired each other. And that's, that's what a friendship is really all about. He's so, he's so, when you talk about giving back and just having a smile on his face when he's giving back, like every time I've talked to him, I've talked to him a few times. And every time you talk to him and he's telling a story about um, helping somebody, you could tell how genuine, how authentic you don't get a lot of that. And for somebody yeah. that's at that level, that stardom, because he is a star, 
I don't think he ever puts himself at that level. It's so authentic. Everything, he, the way he talks, he smiles. That is when he when he's like just just in stories and 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 when you have an open conversation, everything's just so authentic and real. And he wants to learn about you. He wants to know about you. It's 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 yeah, incredible, incredible individual. Yeah, one individual you named and and I, it had a huge impact on um, DDP as well was uh, Dusty Rhodes. Oh, yeah. Give me a story of Dusty Rhodes, because it uh, seems like everybody has a story well, of Dusty Rhodes. Yeah, so first of all, Dusty Rhodes gave me this character, uh, Johnny B. Bat, okay, yeah. based on Little Richard, okay? Yeah. And uh, so I never thought I looked like Little Richard, you know? Well, anyways, Dusty has, uh, the makeup artist was um, uh, Terry Terry Runnels, you know, Marlena from WWE. She was a makeup artist first with, with uh, um, Ted Turner's CNN and WCW. Yeah. So they put me in this makeup chair and she does my hair and makeup and lipstick and eyeliner and all this stuff. They spun me around the chair. I'm like, damn, I look like little Richard, you know? <laughs> and so Dusty could see this character before anyone else could ever see it, you know? So now Dusty has, th- this is probably my greatest memories in wrestling. No matter what I accomplished was the time I got to spend one-on-one with Dusty Rhodes teaching me how to become Johnny B. Bad. And he goes, okay, so this is what I want you to do. I want you to walk up to that microphone and I want you to say, I'm so pretty. I should have been born a little girl. And I said, Dusty, are you kidding me? And, you know, Dusty's really flamboyant, you know, and now here I am, a a, a boxer from New York, you know? So uh, I walk up to the microphone, I go, I'm so pretty. I should have born a little girl. He goes, no, no, because you got to do that with a southern accent. Come on. <laughs> I'm so pretty. I should have born a little girl. Like that. And finally, I get it down. He goes, I love it. And we'd be laughing so hard. <laughs> then we come up with the lines, you know, I'm a bad man. And then he goes, so here's your thing. Your finish is going to be that knockout left hook because you were a former boxer. And he goes, we're called the tuna fruity. So <laughs> I kick your booty with my tuna fruity. <laughs> And these other things, we we get laughing so hard. He just hugged me, and we'd be just laughing at each, holding each other, laughing. You know, it was like those are memories that I will cherish forever because he would always work with me before the shows, or you know, I get there a little early, and and he helped me with some of my wrestling. And and there's so many people that I can list that really that they put me with. Like I didn't really know how to wrestle. Remember, I'm I'm thrown out there in one of the pay-per-views. I'm wrestling Sting. I almost passed out just thinking I'm going out there to wrestle Sting. I didn't even know how to wrestle, you know? Um so they they put me and so they put me on the road with guys that were really talented, you know, that had been in the business for a long time, like like Steve Regal or um uh Triple H who was Paul Levesque back in WCW. Um, oh gosh, there's, uh, Raven, um, Scott Levy, uh, so many guys that have helped me, uh, Ricky Morton uh, on the road that would teach me and, and, and help me and to become a better wrestler. And I did it and then go into the power plant in my off days. So I eventually become like most improved wrestler because I finally learned, you know, much, you know, Arn Anderson said, I would say, you know, that I don't know the difference between, uh, a wrist, a wrist lock and a wrist watch. <laughs> he was one of the funniest guys, man. Um, quick Aaron Anderson story. Okay. We were doing a boxing boxing versus wrestler match. And I think it was, I think it was Nick, Nick, that um, Nick Patrick, that was our referee. I'm pretty sure it was either him or Pee Wee. I can't remember which one, but um, I, they, he does a break in, in, in and uh, he said to me, he goes, Arn told me to tell you. Now, this is in, in the match, in the live audience, you know, because Arn said, punch him in the face as hard as you can. And I'm thinking, why would I ever punch him in the face 
I go, why? And he goes, because he said your working punch is killing him. <laughs> so in other words, I couldn't pull the punches very good. And he just said, just knock me out, man. And it was, that was Arn. Arn was one of the funniest guys in the locker room. One of my favorite guys to work with too. And of course the matches with Stone Cold uh, with Fly and Brian that are classics that I had, which I, I will always, you know, be blessed to have worked with such great talent in my life. You put you put your body on the line a lot. Like if you see your past matches stuff, like a lot of aerial, a lot of jumps. How much wear and tear? Like how many injuries? What was your worst injuries? Like how much time did you have off? Because that's, I mean, obviously wrestling is entertainment, but when you get a 200, 250 pound, whatever you are jumping off a rope and la- no matter what, you're going to get hurt. So what was your worst injuries? And, and, and how was your mindset when you started doing those aerials and those things like, was there any like, oh my God, what am I doing? Is this right? Like, was there any hesitation when you first started doing those aerials and stuff? Well, you know, um, when I was over in Japan at WCW, I seen a, um, the first time I ever saw a shooting star press. And when I was younger, I used to do all these crazy things off the diving board, double flips and, you know, full gainers and, you know, all, and the, even the move that's called the marrow salt where you face one way, turn and jump and hit the, hit the diving board and flip out the back way. I would do that in the ropes, you know. So I brought these moves. And when I was in, when I went to WWE, I wanted to do something a little different that's never been done before in, in the WWE ring anyways. And that was the uh, called the wild thing, which is really the shooting star press. So I would I figure I, I can't practice this in the ring because it's too, too dangerous and too painful. So I would go to my daughter's gymnastics school and I'd ask the coach if I could bring a palm, if I can go in the corner and just where the kids are working the mats or something, if I can go in the corner, just use a pommel horse and a crash pad and practice it because, you know, and it was funny because all the kids would watch me do this, but I'm landing on my stomach. So these kids are laughing at me thinking, geez, this is crazy. You know, you're supposed to land on your feet in gymnastics and I'm landing on my stomach because I want to land on the guy with my hands and my knees and the chest to chest, you know? So I learned how to do it. Now, I'd never done it in the ring. I'd never even tried it in the ring. And I did it at SummerSlam against Goldust. And I remember telling uh, Dustin before the match, we were, we were walking through the match before the crowd ever got in there. And I said, I got this new move I want to try. He goes, well, what, what is it? I go, well, it's a like a reverse flip. And he goes, well, how do, you, how do I catch you? How do you land? I go, no, no, I'm going to like Samoan drop you in the corner. You lane flat like you're out. I'm going to go to the top rope, and I'm going to do the flip, and I'm going to land on each side of you, hands and knees, and our chests will hit each other. He looks at me and goes, are you crazy? (laughs) And he goes, just go for it, man. And sure enough, in the match, I'm going for it. Now, it's SummerSlam, packed audience, pay-per-view. I'm climbing the rope, and I'm going, oh, my gosh. Because people don't realize how slippery those ropes are. Because yeah. all the guys wear oil, you know? So yeah. there's oil all those ropes. And when you, when you step up on there, it's very flimsy. And the, and the, and the WWE ropes were, were real ropes where WCW had cables, you know? So they were real sturdy. WWE ropes were a little bit looser, you know? So I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I got no choice but to go for this m- new move. And of course, I, I nailed it or, or got pretty close to having it perfect and not hurting him and not hurting me. And that's the key to doing that is not hurting the guy, you know? So it was just fun trying new things and different things. And uh, uh, recently for my 61st first birthday, I don't know if you saw it, but I I'm, uh, I had Dallas Page, Eric Watts, uh, Ice Train, some of the guys from 
back in WCW, came my birthday, and we went up to this double decker dock in Lake Lanier. And I said, I'm going to reenact. I haven't done these moves in 23 years. And of course, I did them off that top of the deck on my, uh, it's on YouTube and Facebook and my other Twitter uh, programs to, the, to show that I, I still got it after all these years. I love it. I love it. I love it. Health is a huge part of what you do and, and obviously taking care of yourself. Um, what, what's a daily routine for you? You know, the key to really staying as healthy as I am in the kind of shape that I'm still in is eating. I mean, you know, I often tell people that your, your body is your Ferrari for life. You only got one shot at this Ferrari, you know, but if you had a Ferrari parked in your driveway and needed gas, what kind of gas would you put in that Ferrari? I mean, you don't care if gas is $5 a gallon, you're putting a high test premium in your Ferrari. But, you know, we often treat our Ferrari like it's some Volkswagen or some, you know, third hand, third hand-me-down car or something yeah. like that, you know? And so when you treat your body like a Ferrari and you put the best food in it, you know, I, I eat uh, grain-free um, gluten-free. I'm, I'm really smart about what I'm putting in my body. And it's really transformed my life, uh, the way I think, the way I, my energy. Um, and then I only work out three times a week. I do uh, three. My workouts are about 30 minutes, full body workouts. And then once in a while, I, I, I uh, put, do some DDPY, go over Dallas's plates. We do the yoga together. And uh, so I, I just kind of holding back the hands of time, you know, and uh, as we know, there's father time is the undefeated champion, but uh, then <laughs> I'm going down swinging. <laughs> how many, how many children do you have? You I have just one daughter. One daughter. Mariah. How old is she yeah. now? Mariah's gosh. In fact, she's coming here this Friday. She spends a week with me in the summer with our granddaughter, Sophia. So I'm so excited about them yeah. coming. I'll be taking them to the lake and taking them to that double decker dock and watching them jump off. <laughs> So uh, she's, gosh, she's 30, 34 now, I believe. 34. Yeah. What, 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 is, what did fatherhood mean to you then? And what does fatherhood mean to you now? When well, she was young you know, and when she, and when, and, and now, because obviously it changes, right? Yeah. The hard part now, her mom was, her mom is Sable. Uh, Rena, yeah. And the hard part about that is, is because we were on the road so much, you know, we missed out on, on a lot of the childhood and things you don't think about. You're so self-centered in some ways and, and, and um, that we missed out on a lot of what, and it affected her. She went through some really tough times in life. And I think the reconciliation that we have now and the respect we have for each other's is just amazing. I, I, I love her and I know she loves me and the past is the past. You know, I say yesterday's the, the tomb and today is the womb. <laughs> so I live for today and so does she. So we, we put those things behind us. And um, I, I just adore. She's a great mom. And my my little um, Sophia, that's my granddaughter, is the apple of my eye. And I can't wait to see her. And she just, I'm G Pa, you know. So they, she calls me G Pa. And uh, it's, it's so crazy. Is now that it's just like my dad and my mom with my with my kids. Um, it's like you know when you grow up, it's all about work and providing your providers. And then when you have grandkids, now it's like now I could just enjoy them and love them and cherish them because there's not that pressure of being a parent. It's that that enjoyment of just that love right now. So I, I love that you're saying that because it's it's very precious, right? Yeah, you know, it's uh, I can fill her up with sugar and give her right back. <laughs> I don't got to watch her bounce off the walls at night. <laughs> I love it. I love uh, it. I, you know, it's. Uh, 
it's just a blessing. And, and, you know, life is so precious and I enjoy every moment, every, the time I have left, I really, you know, Jeff, I, I realize we're all going to leave a legacy, you know, and, and I, my legacy is not going to be wrestling or how big a car I had or nice a house I had or, or, you know, material things. The legacy I, I want to leave is the difference I was able to make in someone else's life. When they, when they hear my name, they go, man, that guy really changed my life or really helped me through a situation or whatever. That's a legacy I really hope to leave. It's funny because that's actually, I, I never have any set questions. And that last question I always ask everybody at the end is uh, a living eulogy. Like if, if you were to leave today, if something were to happen to you, how would you want to be remembered by your loved ones and your closest family? And I guess you answered it, right? It's just, it's, it's, that, it's that joy of knowing that you were there and you helped as much people as you possibly can, right? Well, and you know, I also want everyone to know, and I, I often say this in my my presentations that um, we are the author of our story. And you know, some people out there, the listeners, have had some some bad chapters in their story, <laughs> just like me. Yeah. But it doesn't mean it's the end of the story. Every day we have the opportunity to write a new page, and those new pages they become our new chapters of overcoming adversity, not giving up, uh, believing in yourself. Whatever that chapter is going to be. You are the author and don't ever give up on your dreams, your goals, because I got to tell you, man, we pass failure on the road to success. Yeah, I love it. Have you, have you taken pen to paper and write a book? <laughs> I wrote a book, uh, oh gosh, in, in 2010, I believe it came out called how to be the happiest person on the planet. And it was my first book. So it's like, you want to get the book out there. So you put out a lot of stuff that you, when you look back on your book, you go, Oh, you know, actually, what I found is more important than being happy is being content in life. Happiness comes and goes. We experience tragedies and and, and hardships and broken hearts and things. And it comes and goes. And you can't be happy all the time. But the idea is being content. And I really found myself in a place of being content in life, uh, where you could be in the midst of a storm and be still being grateful and content. And appreciate grateful. I love that. Yes, because we often um, we 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 often take for granted the very things in life we should appreciate. And man, I I appreciate conversations. I appreciate meeting someone. And uh, uh, the, the other day, uh, uh, I was in uh, uh, Syracuse, New York, for the Nationals for the car show, and I went into Wegmans because it was one of my my uh, friends' birthdays. I wanted to get her flowers and and a card and stuff. So as I'm walking out of Wegmans, someone's following me and goes. Mark Merrill? And I turn around, I go, yeah. And she goes, I can't believe you're in Syracuse. I watched your videos. You spoke at my daughter's school. And she's oh, going, that's on awesome. And on. Awesome. And I thought, wow, that's 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 a legacy I want to leave, man. That's the joy I have in my life is to know that someone would recognize me for something good I did. Because we all make mistakes, man. Yeah. But yeah. don't judge me for my past, man. I don't live there anymore. Is is there any students that you've kept a relationship with or anybody that you've helped change your life or um made such an impact that you've kept like contact with them over the years? Yes. And you know, one of the amazing stories was she just posted it on her page yesterday on Facebook. So I I can share this this story. This uh Younger, I spoke at her her uh, middle school over ten years ago. Oh wow! And the day before I came to her school, she tried to hang herself, and the rope broke. She she put it on her ceiling fan, and, and it broke. So she thought, I can't even. I'm worthless. I can't even kill myself. You know. 
So she goes to school the next day and she hears my presentation and it changed her whole life. Well, now we, we, we become friends and her, her parents brought her in to meet me at my studio where, I, where my office is when I was in uh, Orlando, Florida. And um, a year ago, she had her, her first baby, a little girl named Izzy. And so she write, we write this story about how that day changed her life forever. And now she has a baby. And it's just the joy that you see of someone that you, you made an impact on. And there's letter after letter and, and message after message of hundreds and hundreds, even thousands of people that wrote, wrote to me on how their life was changed from the presentation. I'm just sharing from my heart. I don't go up there with no notes or anything. It's just, this is my story. It's authentic. It's, authentic. Yeah, I, love it. I, I am. love it. I 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 love it. This has been uh, an incredible conversation, brother. We've gone so many different directions. So as I love it, and you've been very open and honest. Is there anything you want to leave with our audience? Well, I would love to hear from you. If you heard me from, from Jeff's podcast, please write to me. Um, you can reach me, you know, through, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You just Google my name. You'll see, you'll find me. Of course, go to our YouTube channel, which is youtube.com, The Mark Merrill. And Mark is M-A-R-C-M-E-R-O. And you'll see many of our videos that Jeff and I have discussed today. I love it. I love it. I love it. This has been an absolute pleasure. On our show notes, I'm going to put all the links, get a hold of Mark. Um, now, quickly, we had just talked about that. Let me just, do you have any thoughts? Or, I mean, your story is so interesting, like an autobiography or like there's so many layers here. Are you going to eventually write a, or put pen to paper and start writing again? I I, I am. I, okay, awesome, awesome. Wanna, you need to, you need to. One, one more uh, book that I hope really inspires people because I, you know, even since I wrote the first back, you know, it's a roller coaster of life, you know. Like, 100%. Life isn't perfect. No. You know, um, I never thought I'd go through a divorce or a broken heart or lose loved ones. And, and you know, last year alone, I lost six very close people in my life, you know. And when you lose that many people, you realize how precious every moment is, you know. Yeah. We're, we're all going to die. And it's like there's a line of people. We're all, you know, you never know when someone's going to be the last time you talk to someone. Um, so I'm... I'm very hopeful that I can write another book and um, and I hope I meet you in person sometime. But come to Toronto, we got to hook up, all right? hundred percent. I'd love to take you around, man. This is awesome. I appreciate you, brother. Thank you so much. All right, bro. God bless you, man. Thank, thank you, you buddy. That's a wrap for today. I want to thank our guest, Mark, for being such an incredible guest, taking time on his busy schedule to be here on the Jeff Nozine podcast. If you guys enjoy this podcast as much as I have, like all weeks, tell your friends, tell your family, spread the word, leave a review. Myself and my team love spending time reading the reviews. Until next week, guys, keep moving forward. Yeah.